Well, it's, uh, it's great to see everybody again. If you're a guest, my name is David. I'm the pastor. We're glad you're here. I have been out for a few weeks. The guys did a great job, and so it's good, it's good to be back. The last Sunday of this month, uh, the June 26th, in our four worship, ser- worship services, we will have a time of baptism in those services. So if you have uh, a believer in Christ, but you've never have been immersed in believer's baptism, or if you've not come to Christ and you uh, think you need to do that, I want you to give us a call these next couple of weeks and give us a chance to talk to you. Uh, the seventh book of the Old Testament, seventh book of the Bible is called Judges. And Judges ends with these words. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They did what was right in their own eyes. We begin today a series that will go through the end of July on the life and ministry of Samuel. A man that for this series we will entitle the king maker. And what Samuel did is he took 12 tribes in chaos and in rebellion against God. And he took them and he found a way to lead them. And he got to them a point in worshiping God where he then came and anointed a man to be their king. A young man by the name of David who would take them to the greatest heights they would ever have. Samuel did that as the kingmaker. But what we need to see from this series, and what I really kind of want you to get from this series, because of Samuel, is to understand this. Because of our rebellion against God, everybody needs somebody to save them. Everybody needs somebody to save them. So we begin this series with Samuel, <clears throat> not in the book that bears his name, not even with the first event of his life, But we're going to begin in the context of the world in which he came. We're going to begin in the book of Judges. And in beginning in the book of Judges, we're going to see the people who we will classify as the rebellious. Because the people of Israel were living in rebellion against God. And this is the culture in which Samuel would come. And the thing that I would like for you to see, just from this message in itself, is this. If you live... Like a person in rebellion against God, then you are a person in rebellion against God. If you live that way, it's because, well, you are that way. And so let's begin the message today. And we come to look at the book of Judges. What I want to say to you is, welcome to the dark side. Because when you come to the book of Judges, that's what you see. That phrase, dark side, was made popular. It began 45 years ago. I was a teenager, and this movie came in called Star Wars. And Star Wars had the most evil person you could ever imagine with the most evil, coolest name around, Darth Vader. I mean, the only name more evil than that is Satan itself. I mean, and this is, this is, this is before everybody knew that Darth came to the good side. I mean, when he came out, he was just pure evil. And when that movie came out, What we have seen in the last 45 years is that it is just embedded in the life of our culture for good, bad, or indifferent. I don't know that it matters. We we use phrases that relate to Star Wars all the time, including the phrase the dark side. But it's a good description. And in the third movie, the third of that first original trilogy, The Return of the Jedi, before Luke goes out to confront his dad, Darth Vader, Master Yoda gives him some final words. And this is what? They are. Once you start down the dark path, 
forever will it dominate your destiny. Once you start that way, well, that's where you're going. Now, I recognize that when in church, some people get uncomfortable quoting things from popular culture to make a point. Understand, Paul did that in the book of Titus when he quoted a pagan philosopher that we now know as Epimenides. So I'm just telling you, if Paul did it, it's, it's okay. But just to make some of you feel more comfortable, let me reword this into our culture and our day and be a little more Christian about it. Once you rebel against God, forever will it dominate your life. Once you choose to rebel against God, forever will it dominate your life. When you come to the Old Testament, it can be difficult to understand that, especially in the world we live in today, living so far removed from the Old Testament times. And, and I get it. I, sometimes, you know, I struggle with some of the things in the Old Testament. And I taught the Old Testament for Wayland Baptist University one time as a, as a uh, kind of an adjunct professor for one semester forum for a group of people. I mean, and, and I love the Old Testament. It can be a struggle. Now, here's the thing when you come to the Old Testament. I'm, I'm going to kind of help you with that to, to understand, especially if, if, if you're fairly new to the faith or you're not even a Christian yet or maybe you've just been out of the church and you're just getting back. First thing, if you're going to read the Bible, don't start with the Old Testament. That's the first thing I tell you. I mean, we're, as Americans, we want to start at the beginning of a book. I mean, I've started a book the other day, you know, and I'm even doing it on my tablet. I'm getting really, I'm getting into that whole new stuff where you read online. I don't even have pages. It drives me nuts. I can't dog ear a tablet. But anyways, when you, when you, we, we don't want to start in the middle of it. We start at the beginning. But you can't think that way. You need to get to the Bible. Start at the New Testament. In fact, there's only two books of the Old Testament you should even read until you completely finish the New you can read Genesis, and then Psalms are good. You can read through all the different 150 Psalms, but don't go to the Old Testament until you finish up the New. Maybe read the New Testament twice, because the Old Testament's hard. And, and I'll tell you this, when you come to the Old Testament, understand something that I've said many times. The Old Testament, understand this, is a book that promises something. It's a book of promise, and the New Testament is the book that fulfills that promise. I've, and I've said this many times to you, and still people will come to me and talk about the Old Testament and try to forget that context. Listen, the Old Testament's hard to understand. I get that. Because when you read the Old Testament and you finish out in Malachi, you've read a book that is fundamentally about failure. You get that, right? In the Old Testament, the people of God fail miserably. It's a book of failure. It's missing something. It points to something. And what makes the Old Testament is important is that what it does is point to Jesus. You see, the Old Testament points to the need of a Savior, and the New Testament tells us who that Savior is, Jesus. And why the Old Testament's important is because of Jesus. The Old Testament's important because God begins to reveal himself to us through it. So yes, we need the Old Testament because God reveals himself through those pages of the Old Testament. But he reveals himself as pointing us to Christ. And the other thing about the Old Testament that's so important is that the reason it matters to me it's because it mattered to Jesus and it mattered to the New Testament writers. They quoted from it. That's all they had. It mattered to them. And so, listen, I, I am a, a Gentile in the 21st century in America. I'm about as far removed from the life of Israel as you can imagine. What happened to them, other than being interesting historically, would make no difference in my life at all if not for Jesus. So the Old Testament matters because it mattered to Jesus. And when you read the Old Testament, now, and, and, and what I'm going to say to you is kind of, 
I, I know if we were in a seminary somewhere, you know, taking an Old Testament survey, you got to take that, right? Okay, this isn't going to be an Old Testament survey, but your pastor's telling you. So you write it down. Your supervisor, I'm telling you, write this down. When you, when you come, it's not going to be in some group of scholars meeting off in the Evangelical Theological Society. None of those people are going to tell you this. But the Old Testament can be best understood in the lives of six individuals. Three major individuals and three guys who transition. Abraham's important. You read the book of Genesis. Man is sinful. God calls a pagan named Abraham. He's a pagan. God calls the pagan Abraham to lead his people. And he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bless the whole world through you. I'm going to save and provide a salvation for the whole world through you, Abraham. And when you get to the New Testament, you see this is what's important. Jimmy, this is it, that he saved the whole world through Jesus. You come to Moses. I mean, when you get to Moses, the people of Israel, they're in bondage in Egypt. And Moses is a foreshadowing. He's, a, he's, he's looking forward to a savior. He's a type of Jesus in a sense. What does he do? He saves them out of their slavery and bondage. And he teaches them how to worship God. And then you come to David. I mean, King David, he, he's the one. With David, he makes Israel the greatest they will ever be is under David. He takes them to the highest of highs. In fact, every king after David is measured against David. Even the predictions and the fortune and the, and the looking forward to the coming of the Messiah is measured in terms of David. These are the three men that dominate the Old Testament. There's three more men that are transitional figures. That means they transition to people. Joshua takes them from the wilderness into the promised land. He transitions them. Elijah takes them when the kings begin to fail. And there's a movement towards the predominance of the prophets. Elijah transitions them to that dominance of the prophets. And then there's the man we're going to look at for the next nine weeks, Samuel. And Samuel transitions to people from the period of the judges, of chaos, sin, and rebellion. He transitions, transitions them to the king. He gets them to David, the kingmaker. And to understand his story is to understand something of the book of Judges. Judges begins telling us about Joshua and what he has done. And then Joshua dies. And then in chapter 2, there is an essence, a summation of what we're going to see in the book of Judges. And Judges 2.10 tells us that a whole generation came. Right after the death of Joshua and all of those guys, a whole generation came that did not know the Lord. That did not know him. It's not that they didn't know who he was. They did not know him, know him relationally and did not connect and relate to the history of his deliverance. And then verse 11 of Judges 2 says this. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and serve the Baals. Now, the word Lord is, is the covenant name of God. It's his personal name. He's their God, the Lord, Yahweh. They, they had done evil in his sight. The idea of evil is a very general word, just like in the New Testament. The idea of evil is really wickedness against God. They did what was wicked, the way God saw it. What did they do? They served. They worshiped Baal and the Baals. And so I need to take a few minutes to explain to you something about the worship and the religion of Baal. Uh, to do that, I'm going to talk just a little bit about mythology. In the seventh grade in Texas, when I grew up, we took in English literature in Texas, we took Greek mythology. If you grew up in Texas around the time I did, 
you better have taken it because they told me I had to take it. So everybody better have taken that class, man. You took Greek mythology. And in Greek mythology, one of the things you understand about the gods that they've made up, they're not eternal in the sense that they have no beginning and no end. In fact, all the gods have some time that they've been created. And, and the head god of the Greeks, and, and, and the Romans had a very similar mythology. The head god was Zeus. And he, he, had, he had parents that brought him in to creation, existence. And Zeus was the god of, of thunder and rain and the storms. He had a brother, Poseidon, god of the sea, and a brother, Hades, god of the dead. And he had a wife named Hera, and he had children from plenty of people other than his wife. I mean, the, the gods they created were just like the people, but, you know, like souped up on steroids, regular people. And this is how they were. Now, in this mythology was predated, and, and most of us kind of understand something about Greek mythology. It was predated uh, by a long time of the Canaanite mythology. And the Canaanite religion was similar, but it was just more brutal. And it was, in many ways, a more, a more crude understanding of mythology. There was this god named El. And there's, there were other gods. And El had a son named Baal. Now, the word Baal means to be lord or master. There's lots of different people called Baal. All the different tribes within the Canaanite religion had their own version of Baal. And Baal was the god of the storms and the god, you know, of lightning and all of that stuff. His, his consort was Asherah or Astarte, depending on how you, where you look. He had a brother who was guard of the seas named Yom and a brother who was guard of a god of the dead named Mot. And they had this, this religion. And the thing about the Canaanite mythological religion in all its crudality is that they believed that, you know, whatever god you had in your different gods, if you went to battle with another group, another nation, another tribe, and you won, it's because their god was more powerful than your god. And you could continue to worship your God, but you had to worship their gods as well. In other words, what, what the pagans believed and what they practiced was something called syncretism. In other words, they blended the different religions together as long as you worshiped the one that dominated. And so at the heart and soul of Canaanism, and the uh, Baalism, the Canaanite religion, was this continual lean of absorption. It was this taking and bringing people's different beliefs into their own. And so if you were the Israelites and you only had one God, that was your belief system. If the Canaanites would defeat you, you would have to abandon, in essence, your belief in Yahweh is the only God. And you would have to begin to worship their gods. I mean, not only were these, these you know, pagans who did idolatry and who worshipped, but they had some unique practices. For one of the things that they did is they believed in human sacrifice. In other words, if something was going wrong, if, you were, if, if the weather was bad, your crops weren't coming in, there was no rain. If, if, for instance, you were being defeated by your enemies and you had to get the attention of your gods, they would, to the gods, of course, who didn't exist, take children and sacrifice them. I want you to understand what I mean. <laughs> we got a lot of children in our church all over the place. And so just think for a moment. They would go to these moms, the men, and they would take the children out of their lives and arms and lives. And for their own expediency, for their own benefit, they would sacrifice the children to gods who didn't exist, in essence, to save themselves. Children were a commodity whose main purpose was for the benefit of the culture. And not only did they do this cruelty, then they would go and they would basically practice some of the most deviant 
perverse things you can ever imagine. There's nothing that our culture does today that they didn't do on a greater scale. All is part of their religion. So they had this abandonment of an idea of worshiping God. And they violated that worship and that relationship and the relationship with each other. And it was a thoroughly pagan thing. And one of the things we struggle with is the fact that God told the Israelites, you've got to destroy them completely. And it troubles us, and I get that, because we live with Christian values. It says you don't, you don't kill, you don't destroy, you convert, you bring them to Jesus. The problem is Canaanite pagans never converted. They were never converted. They never converted. We only know of three people that you could, you could say even remotely ever came and abandoned their religion to come to the worship of Yahweh. Rahab who's the main person, Ruth did it, Naaman the leper did it, and that's it. And so it makes sense that God would say you need to drive them out because if you don't drive them out, their culture will consume you. And that's exactly what happened. Their culture consumed the people of Israel and they took the worship of Baal and they blended it into the worship of Yahweh. Verse 12 says this. So they forsook or abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them. And they bowed themselves down to them. They worshiped them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. And they would say, Lord, we didn't stop worshiping you. We just incorporated these others. <laughs> and God would say, no, it doesn't work that way. I'm the only God. You don't get to do that. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal. And the Astaroth, his, his consort. Verse 14, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. In other words, because they didn't drive them out, they began to come around and defeat the Israelites. And they would take whatever they had. They would plunder them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies around them. So they could no longer stand before their enemies. They could not stand before them. God was no longer with them. And wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for the evil, the evil they have done, for this evil. As the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. But then... The Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. So that what happened is the people would sin. They would repent. God would raise up a judge to deliver them. Verse 17, 18, and 19 says, and when the judge died, they would go right back to worshiping the Baals all over and over again. So verse 20, the anger of the Lord burned against them. The word burned also means to be angry. So it's, about, it's like this. The Lord was angry with anger against Israel. And he said, because this nation has transgressed my covenant. They have sinned, violated my covenant agreement with them, which I commanded their fathers and has not listened to my voice. Verse 21 and 22 says he gave them over. He said, if you want to live with evil, you get to live with evil. Listen, God will always let us choose evil. But you live with all that it involves. If you choose to rebel against God, you get to live with the full consequences of that rebellion. Verse 23. The Lord allowed those nations to remain, not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hand of Joshua. So here's the thing. They sinned, and they rebelled, and the nation would come and plunder them, and then they would repent, and God would send the judge. And for a brief period of time, the judge would deliver them, but the time was brief. 
And the period of the judges still spiraled into ultimate chaos. And while the judges may deliver them for a short period of time, ultimately it did them no good. And when the last judge story is shown, the judge, the story of Samson, and ends in the 16th chapter of Judges. Then the next five chapters begins and tells us of two horrible incidents that occurred. One, of a family that made their own idol to worship and set their own family members a priest. Another, of an act of brutality against a concubine of a man where she was assaulted and left for dead. This is the way their culture lived at that time, the way the people of Israel lived because they accepted the Canaanite culture in. So that the book of Judges ends this way. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. People did what they was thought was right in their own eyes. So into that culture, into that world, because they needed someone, came Samuel, the kingmaker, who would begin the process in God's divine plan of delivering them from the rebellion. But in the book of Judges, what we see is this, and we cannot lose sight of it. Once you begin to rebel against God, forever will it dominate your life. Once you rebel, once you start down that path, you can't get out on your own. With that in mind, I want to try to relate this to some things that can help us today. And so I want to begin just by sharing with you this truth that you've got to get. Please understand that rebellion against God never ends well. It never ends well. Now, sometimes rebellions can end well. I mean, the Star Wars trilogy, you know, the original, the Rebel Alliance won. Yay, you know, you know Han and Luke and Princess Leia and, you know, and Chewbacca and all that. By the way, the guy that played Chewbacca originally lived when I was in Bridgeport, not, not far from, from us. And I've seen him walking around every so often. And yes, he was big and he was hairy too. That's all. <laughs> and you know, Americans, we rebelled against, you know, England and we won. That's fine. But you never win when you rebel against God, ever. And that's the problem we face in the book of Genesis, the one of the beautiful stories in Genesis. It's a reminder that when God made Adam and Eve, he gave them the garden and said, you have the freedom. God gave them the freedom to enjoy that garden. But in order to be free, there has to be some limit. He said, so don't eat of one tree. There's a thousand trees you can have. Just don't eat of the one. And what did they do in the third chapter of Genesis? It said they saw the tree. And they decided that if they would eat of that tree because of the temptation of the serpent, they would be like God. And they wanted to be like God more than they wanted to obey God. And the basis of all sin is found in Genesis 3, to be the God of our own life so that we can make those decisions. And that's exactly what happened in Judges. They wanted to decide how they would worship and serve God. But understand this, we don't get to define what it means to worship and serve God. God does. We don't get to define that. And that's exactly what's happening in our culture today. The biggest threat to the Christian faith isn't persecution. It isn't people disagreeing with us. In fact, Christianity thrives in the midst of disagreement and persecution. Our biggest threat is that we accept the culture around us, and we fold it in, and we try to make Christianity adapt to the culture around us. Back on Mother's Day, there was a pastor in um, 
Austin, Texas. Has to be in Austin, of course. And on that Mother's Day, he prayed to Mother God, okay? And then he took the Lord's Prayer. Instead of saying, Our Father in heaven, he says, Our Mother who are in heaven. Now, understand, he took the words of his Savior, Jesus, and he, in his infinite wisdom, decided to change what Jesus taught us to do. And his rationale, as he said, was that the attributes of God are much more like a mother than a father, and he should be understood that way. And people actually believe that. You see, we, we, we're getting to the point where we look at the culture around us, and we're wanting to change it. And we want to take it and fit it into the Christian faith. Instead of going to the culture and in love and saying, you need Jesus, we're coming to Jesus and saying, you need the change for the culture. And you see churches saying there are other ways to come to God but through Christ. Even though Jesus himself said, I'm the only way to God. I am it. People who follow Jesus says, well, no, Jesus, I follow you, but you're wrong. You're, you're not the only way to God. And what we see now in the world around us, in, in the Christian faith, and we see people saying, well, you know, we've got to be more accepting of the culture. In fact, one of the things I hear now is, you know, people are just born a certain way. And if people are born a certain way, they can't help it. They just got to, you got to accept that. Well, now I realize we're born sinful. I mean, I get that. We're all born sinful, and we all have a tendency to sin, but the whole thing about the Christian faith is you can't change, not on your own power, but through faith in Christ. Think, to say that you're born a certain way and there's nothing you can do, that because you're born that way, you're destined to be that way, is both fatalistic and nihilistic. It's fatalistic because what you're saying is you have no freedom. You have no freedom to fundamentally change by the power of God. And one of the things we know is that God gives us freedom. And we say, we don't have, I can't help who I am. So if you're a pedophile, you can't help being a pedophile. So we just got to accept that there are some people who are going to do certain things to children, but that's okay. That's who they are. Forget the children. They don't count or matter. It's just a person who was born that way. And if you're born with a tendency to steal, and if you're born with a tendency to have no value for human life, then it's okay. That's just who you are. And the rest of us got to accept that. That is fatalistic. You are saying that within your conception imprinted on your DNA is a certain lack of morality or a certain moral standard, and it can't change. And you have no capacity in your life to morally change. And that is at the heart of moral relativism. Who you are is all that matters. It's also nihilistic. By that we mean life has no meaning. If you can't change, if you can't become a new person, if you are resigned fatalistically to who, the way you are when you're at birth, you have no meaning in life. And that which is most powerful will always win out. Might will make right in the world of morality. And we end up in a position of rebelling against God. And the church is coming to a place where we're rebelling against God and we're saying it's okay. But remember this, God doesn't take rebellion lightly. He never takes rebellion lightly. Does he love us? Yes. Is he compassionate? Yes. And I know that because he sent Jesus to save us. I know that because in the judges, he sent judges to save them. But he sends Christ for us because a holy God 
takes sin seriously. He doesn't take that rebellion lightly. And he sends Christ so that we can become followers of Christ. But here's what's happening. People are taking the things that Jesus said, the things that Jesus did, and they're twisting them to something else. And they're saying, you can corrupt who Christ is and what he did and what he said and still follow him. But you need, and I need to understand this, and this is a solid truth from the New Testament. If you claim you're a follower of Jesus, but don't live and believe like Jesus tells his followers to live and believe, then you're not really a follower of Jesus. If you don't live and believe the way Jesus says and the way the New Testament writers tell us, well, then you're not really a follower of Jesus. You just made it all up on your own. You're going down the path of the worshipers of Baal. And to the world, Samuel came. And Samuel went into that world, and he led the people to a point, and he anointed this guy, this young man, to be king named David. And David took him to the greatest heights ever. And then after he did that, his son Solomon came along, and the wisest man in all the earth undid all of that by introducing paganism right back into the people's lives. And from that point forward, the people of Israel began to spiral downward to absolute failure. And by the time they were utterly destroyed in 587 and the kingship was dead, there would never again be another king. But the king was never ultimately the solution. The solution God had was never ultimately a judge or a king. The king and the judge pointed to someone else. The king and the judge pointed to a savior. And when the Savior came, that was the answer. And why did God send a Savior? Simple. Because everybody needs somebody to save them. And that somebody is Jesus. I began the message by saying, if you live like a person in rebellion against God, then you are a person in rebellion against God. Is that your life? Are you living in rebellion? Are you living on the dark side? Then you need to make a change because you can't change. Through Christ, you need to make a commitment of your life. And I invite you to commit, first of all, to being a part of this series, to come in every sermon. And if you go on vacation, you leave, our sermons are online. You can watch them live or you can watch them on the archives or YouTube. But you, you need to go through the sermon series to Kingmaker. For Samuel had a powerful impact. And if you're living in rebellion, you need to admit that rebellion. And you need to come to Jesus. He is the one who will save you. And only he will do that. In just a moment, some of us will be standing here. If you'd like to come and give your life to Christ or pray or ask us to help you pray with you through the rebellion you had, if you want to come to join your church, you can. If you want to pray with another woman, there should be a ladies. If you want to pray with a woman, there should be another woman here. But remember this as you leave this place today. Once, once you start to rebel against God, forever will that rebellion dominate your life unless you come to Jesus. So Father, we thank you for Christ who is our Savior, 
who you sent into this world to save us from our sin. Into the darkness, into the rebellion, he came. So, Father, let us follow Jesus. Let us give ourselves to him completely and totally and to trust him with everything we have. Father, when all is said and done, to live a life that honors you through Christ. So we pray that we will come to the Savior because everybody needs somebody, and the somebody is Jesus. And let us come to him and give you the glory that is in Christ's name, now and forevermore. Amen. Would you stand? We'll be here. You come.